You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 245, Means and ends. Only once before have I recorded an extra episode just to assess the reign of an emperor, and that was for Justinian. Justinian is widely believed to be one of the greatest Byzantine emperors, but that was not my experience of his reign. Looking back, I actually wasn't harsh enough on Justinian. I didn't realise then that every other emperor who faced a Nika-style uprising had the decency to abandon the throne. Only Justinian concluded that he should commit mass murder to keep his position intact. Manuel Komnenos is not nearly as famous as Justinian, and their reigns have little in common, but his legacy is comparably disputed. I think what connects them is that a generation after their deaths, the Byzantine Empire suffered a major collapse. In neither case is it obviously their fault, but inevitably we look at their reigns for signs of decline. Questions will always linger about whether they could have done things differently. I still feel justified in going after Justinian, whereas I felt quite guilty about criticising Manuel. As I mentioned last time, Manuel's reign is unlike any Byzantine emperor I've had to deal with, well, since Justinian. Justinian got involved in events in Italy, Africa, and Spain, just as Manuel spent so much of his reign concerned with far-off places. This just hasn't been the case for a long time. Byzantine history is actually quite easy to understand, between 650 and 1050, Constantinople is essentially a city-state, whose armies march out either east or west to put down enemies who might one day reach the Bosphorus. Their troops can either march to the Adriatic, the Danube, or the Taurus Mountains. They don't really go beyond that very often, and as long as the areas in between are quiet, then the government in Constantinople can just hum along quite nicely for a long, long time. Once the Second Crusade was over, I fully expected Manuel to go back to the ways of his father and grandfather, keeping the Balkans quiet, and then marching into Anatolia to probe for ways to push the Turks back. But that didn't happen. Manuel turned to diplomacy. Money, treaties, marriage alliances. He interfered in successions and promoted church union, 
and then when he did come to campaign, it was far from home, in Italy or Egypt. Since none of these moves worked out, it's easy to be critical of Manuel, but I felt guilty for doing so. Who am I to criticise a Roman emperor? Who am I to say I know better than Manuel Komnenos? Now you might be thinking, yeah, Robin, shut your face. In fact, what gives you the right to criticise any of the emperors we've been hearing about? And of course you have a point. But given the old parameters, that Constantinople is a city-state and you basically try to keep the lands to the east and west of it quiet, I never felt any conflict about passing judgement on emperors before. The game wasn't that complicated, and there was plenty of past precedent to tell these people what worked and what didn't. So when they did something stupid or self-serving, it didn't feel outrageous to call them out. But Manuel is different. He was faced with a new paradigm. Now the major threat to Constantinople was not based between the Danube and the Taurus Mountains. The threat came from Italy and Germany and France. Since he couldn't send his armies there, he had to turn to diplomacy. He had to make sure that these powers all viewed him as an ally and an asset. So he offered them money and marriage alliances, and sent his troops and sailors in support of their pet project, Outremere. Manuel was doing the same thing that emperors of old had always done. He was taking action to keep foreign armies away from Constantinople. It's just he had to do it in a different way to all of his predecessors. When assessing Manuel, then, we have to look at how successful he was at keeping Constantinople safe. And the problem is that 24 years after his death, a crusader army sacked his capital. Was Manuel a doomed prophet who delayed the inevitable? Or was he a bungling folly merchant who made the Fourth Crusade more likely to happen? Or something in between? I suppose during the course of covering Manuel, I've softened on him. I study as I go. I don't know all the facts before I start. And when I read the outline of his reign, I just couldn't understand why he would send fleets to Egypt or waste money on Italian diplomacy. But now I I get it. I understand what he was trying to do. And I view him much more sympathetically than I did. And yet he didn't succeed. None of his ventures really achieved much beyond a basic sense in the West that he was at least trying to help out. I think ultimately it's fair to say that Manuel's major actions were all poorly executed and some of them poorly conceived. I'm thinking of his Italian invasion in the 1150s, the campaign to Egypt, the arrest of all the Venetians in the empire, and Miriocephalon. With the Italian invasion, it seems to me he took a half measure. He sent a small force in the hopes that the Pope and Barbarossa would not be offended. But by doing so, he doomed the mission to failure. At best, they would have taken the towns of Apulia and then hung on grimly as the Normans besieged each city in turn. It was a campaign based on the hope that the Normans would make mistakes or give up. It feels like Manuel should have made a stronger choice, either invade Italy with a force strong enough to hold it and risk the wrath of those further north, or don't go. The alternative option was to make a strong alliance with the Normans themselves. 
Later in his reign, Manuel offered his daughter to the king, which would have been a major step in that direction, only to yank her away when a better match became available, and therefore doubling down on the enmity which existed between the two sides. The campaign to capture an Egyptian port felt equally half-hearted. Why not send a fleet with enough supplies to last the distance? Why not offer to capture the port and just hand it over to the Crusaders? I mean, if you're really doing this for PR purposes, then what does it matter if you don't get any direct benefit? Take the port and then leave. Write to the Pope and every prince in Europe saying, you did it, you made that happen. Why rub the Latins the wrong way and encourage them not to fully commit to the mission? That may have been difficult to justify to the men risking their lives to take Damietta, but you see my point. Myriokephalon was a disaster, and Manuel really should have known better. If he'd spent a few years softening the Seljuks up before launching a knockout blow, the plan might have succeeded. Did he really have to telegraph the attack the way he did? What if he just took Iconium, and then wrote to the West to say it had been a crusade? Wouldn't people have been nearly as impressed? The arrest of the Venetians was, in retrospect, the worst of all Manuel's decisions. He'd alienated the one ally who'd actively defended Byzantine territory, and when combined with angering the Normans, it left the empire less secure. It also seems like the decision was taken on the assumption that the alliance with Germany would soon resume, which it didn't. That feels like a huge error of judgment. Taken together, I think these follies reflect the complexity of the situation which Manuel faced, and they reflect the slightly muddled approach he took to deal with them. I am willing to cut him some slack, given how new these problems were, but at the same time each situation ended with Byzantium worse off than before. Could Manuel have approached things in a different way? Perhaps. I'm cynical about whether the courts of the West were ever going to think of Byzantium as a true partner. Imperial ceremony always left them cold, as did orthodoxy. I think the Romans were always going to seem foreign to them. But when the Latins needed Byzantine aid, they were friendly enough. So I think there's an argument that Manuel could have focused on making the empire stronger rather than trying to make it more palatable to Western eyes. The only route for Byzantium to expand and get stronger was in Anatolia. The Turks were the only neighbour the empire could attack which didn't upset anyone else. And though it was tough to make substantive gains against the nomads, it still feels like the obvious road to take. Attacking them brought slaves and treasure. Attacking them supported the crusading movement. Attacking them made the Roman territory in western Anatolia safer and richer. Best of all, if parts of Anatolia could be retaken, the population there were natural subjects of Constantinople. They would welcome the return of Orthodox clergy and would grudgingly pay their taxes. This cannot be said for the parts of Italy, Dalmatia and Egypt that Manuel did attempt to capture. My final assessment of Manuel then is that he was a good emperor when it came to his ends, and a poor one when it came to his means. He was trying to make the empire safer, but he failed to do so. 
There is more to say about this, but let's do that by tackling listener questions. Lots came in. Thank you all very much. And what we'll do is we'll talk about Manawil and Western-related topics today. And then next time, we'll take a look at life in Anatolia. We'll try to uncover how Turkic government worked and what living with the nomads was like. And then we'll look at your questions about Anatolia and Manawil's policies there. So, listener LW asks, did Manawil have an overarching strategy or did he react to situations as they developed? I think his ultimate goals were consistent, but his tactics changed as situations developed. What he wanted was to be recognized as the Eastern Roman Emperor. If he had to accept that the Germans were now the Western Roman emperors, then he at least wanted to be seen as undisputed master of the Balkans and beyond. That way, any new crusade would have to be discussed with him, and powers like the Normans would be seen as pariahs for attacking a Christian ally. The means he used to achieve this changed depending on the situation. So at first he was in alliance with Germany, then when that fell away he switched to funding Barbarossa's enemies and flattening the Hungarians, demonstrating essentially that he was master of the Balkans and should be reckoned with. The arrest of the Venetians may have been part of this demonstration of power, showing that those operating in the Eastern Roman Empire were subject to the whims of the emperor and should know their place. The attacks on Egypt and Iconium were attempts to demonstrate something similar, that the Eastern Roman Emperor was the only one who could truly support the Crusader states, and therefore must be consulted and respected by the Pope and German Emperor if they wanted Outremir to survive. Listener R.R. asks what else Manuel could have done instead of arresting all the Venetians, given that Venice itself seemed to be opting out of its treaty obligations and the residents in Constantinople were ignoring the law. I guess he could have negotiated with the Doge about what he expected from Venice, and he could have sent troops into the Venetian quarter to police the residents there. Either of these things might have provoked war, but the mass arrests started one anyway, so Manuel wasn't afraid of that. Almost any other approach wouldn't have felt like a betrayal in the way the incarcerations did. The sudden imprisonments were theatrical, intended to send a message. And though the you-better-behave-on-our-soil message did get through, I think the you-can-never-really-trust-us part of the message did more damage. It's worth saying that historian Paul Magdaleno argued that this was all part of a grand plan to reduce Venetian power. You remember that during the Hungarian Wars, Byzantium took control of the cities of Dalmatia, as in the port cities on the Adriatic that lie in modern Croatia. And you know that the Romans wanted the ports of Apulia, on the east coast of Italy. Well, once Manuel controlled both, he could, in theory hamper Venetian shipping, and if he managed to capture the ports of Egypt as well, then he could cut the Italians off from their most profitable trading partner. If he achieved all of that, then the Venetians would have no choice but to accept true subordination to Constantinople. I'm not convinced it was all part of a grand plan, 
but I think Manuel liked to gather chips to make his hand look stronger. But by doing this, he provoked the Venetians. Even without hindsight, I think that was a bad idea. The Byzantines didn't have the money to maintain a fleet in the Adriatic. Venice did. And the Venetians were the only power interested in stopping Sicily. No matter how bad their behaviour was, attacking them in this way left Byzantium exposed to Norman attacks. It just seems bizarrely short-sighted, given that it was a Norman attack during the Second Crusade that transformed Manuel's foreign policy in the first place. Listener LW asks, What were the long-lasting gains Manuel won for the empire? Well, the defences he built in Anatolia would last for decades to come, providing a screen which allowed the empire's elites to regroup at Nicaea and eventually retake Constantinople from the Latins. Apart from that, it's difficult to see long-term gains because of what happened in 1204. He left the empire with a healthy economy and army. If his successors had had a bit more luck, then Byzantium might have survived and we would have a better idea of what Manuel truly achieved. Listener LW also asks, what was the general Latin opinion of Manuel? Obviously, at the courts of Sicily, Venice and Germany, he was not always well thought of, but in general, Manuel had a high standing in the West. The people of Italy, the French king, the cities of Dalmatia and the papacy all remembered him fondly. The main crusader historian, William of Tyre, was impressed by Manuel's efforts to help Outremer. And when the Third Crusade comes marching through Byzantium, the Pope and others will chide Manuel's successors for not following his example. So clearly, on a personal level, Manuel had made an impact. He was thought of as a friend to the Latins and was remembered well, but he didn't manage to do much for the mistrust which Latins and Byzantines felt towards one another en masse. Historian Paul Magdaleno makes another really interesting point about this. He says that Byzantine gold was a bit of a double-edged sword when it came to diplomacy. On the one hand, it often got men to do what the emperor wanted, but on the other, it left many leaders feeling a little dirty. During the negotiations over church union, the Pope said that if he did make Manuel the sole Roman emperor, he would be accused of simony, given the number of Byzantine gifts that he and his allies had received. Kilijarslan felt the need to talk openly about how he did not deserve the generous subsidies which the emperor paid him in peacetime. And you may remember that King Amalric basically sabotaged the siege of Damietta, in part, we suspect, because of the emasculating spectacle of the Byzantines paying his men to fight. Byzantine treasure created a sense of obligation in these men, but also made them look like they'd sold out their principles and were doing the emperor's bidding. In situations like this, the recipient of such gifts was perversely incentivized to break with Manuel in order to demonstrate to those around him that he was his own man. Listener J.S. asks, Do you think that Manuel's focus on the West was driven by the degree 
to which he grew up surrounded by Latin retainers' friends and influences? Did this damage his strategic focus? I think by growing up amongst many more Latins than either his father or grandfather had done, Manuel had a greater affinity for them, and this would have made him more aware of Latin opinion and interests. But I don't think that's what changed his strategic focus. I think the Second Crusade was a demonstration of brute power, and it made Manuel anxious not to be on the wrong end of it. We should say that increasing Western penetration of the empire probably was inevitable. Modern historians talk about this a lot. Western Europe's population was growing quicker than all the regions around it, and we've seen that with the Normans taking Italy and Sicily, the Italian merchants dominating Eastern Mediterranean trade, and of course the Crusades. These Westerners were welcomed by the Komnenoi because their skill and ambitions could be used in service of the empire. But at times it was like riding a tiger. You had to stay one step ahead to avoid getting mauled. There was a cleric called Gerald of Wales who lived around the same time as Manuel, and he travelled around Europe and wrote extensively. And he said the yearly income of Palermo the Sicilian city, was greater than the whole of England, and went on to say that Sicily and Byzantium were far, far richer than the German monarch. Exaggeration or not, it reflects Gerald's lived experience that the peasants of northern Europe were still paying in kind or in small denominations, whereas the cities of the Mediterranean threw gold coins around in vast numbers. The wider point being that the warrior aristocracies of northern Europe were churning out men but had little cash to offer them, whereas the older cities south and east had lots of money but far fewer soldiers. This was what fueled the Crusades. Not to take anything away from religious devotion, but men would not travel to the Holy Land if they were going to return destitute. Manuel Komnenos saw this clearly enough and tried to get Byzantium aligned with Western interests. It was not inevitable that Latins would sack Constantinople, but it was certain that their needs and demands would fall on Byzantium's doorstep. Listener R.R. says, I'd be interested to discuss why Manuel was known as the Great to his contemporaries, but not to us. Yes, Manuel is called the Great in some sources, but not others. It's worth saying that few figures today are known as the Great. Justinian is known as the Great in some texts, but we rarely call him that. As for why people called him that in his day, I think because he ruled for so long. 37 years is a very long reign, and with life expectancy being so short back then, an entire generation came and went while Manuel presided. Aside from the Norman attacks and the Hungarian War, most of the empire enjoyed peace throughout his time on the throne, and we don't get major reports of discontent beyond Coniates's hindsight-laced account. Listener LW asks if Coniates's history reflects the common Byzantine populace and aristocratic opinion 
of the time and also asks if Manawil's lavish spending led to underfunding in other parts of the state. I wish I had more information to offer on either. We don't really know anything about the opinion of ordinary people uh, beyond their antipathy for the Latins when faced with a crowd of them. Uh, same goes for whether people really were chafing under Comnenian tax policy. We don't have any anti-Manuel aristocratic sources, but we do know that opposition existed within the regime. We covered the coups connected to Andronicus and Theodore Stipiotes. The one I didn't cover was the fall of Alexius Aksuk, the son of John Aksuk, John Komnenos's right-hand man. Aksuk was busted on treason charges around 1170 and spent the rest of his days in a monastery. But we don't have enough information to know if he really was plotting against Manawil or if politics just caught up with him. The chaos that unfurls once Manawil is gone suggests that the emperor was doing a good job of balancing the factions within the new aristocracy. If his son had been born earlier, it's possible that he too would have kept these forces at bay and maintained aristocratic unity around the descendants of Alexius Komnenos. Listener CM asks what happened to Manuel's brother Isaac. Was there any clear attempt to usurp Manuel in favour of his older brother? There were rumours that a faction was forming around Isaac about four years into Manuel's reign, and the emperor acted to disperse this. This was shortly after the famous incident in the imperial tent on campaign, where John Aksuk said that Manuel was not the general his father was, much to Isaac's amusement, and Andronicus told Aksuk where to stick it, and swords were drawn. Anyway, after this, we don't hear much more about Isaac, so presumably he accepted his demotion and lived peacefully at the capital. It was his daughter, by the way, Theodora, who married the king of Jerusalem and then ran away with Andronicus. Which brings us nicely on to listener LW, who asks about incest. He says incest between emperor and niece caused high tension during the reign of Heraclius. Did Manuel's affair with his niece cause similar distaste, or was the act of marriage itself the greatest sin? The answer is indeed that marriage was the big problem. A union between people related that closely was strictly forbidden by the church, uh, which Heraclius ignored. Uh, listener LW goes on to ask, how did the casual affairs of incest permeate Byzantine politics? Was there a lack of morality at the Komnenian court, or did this sort of thing always go on? I think the answer is that incestual affairs went on all the time in medieval courts. We just don't hear about it, uh, though uh, in his younger days, uh, Manuel did enjoy a party lifestyle whereas Alexius was always reported to be very pious. Um, aristocratic women were kept away from other men, obviously from the general public, but also from men of their own class. So uh, the only males they could safely hang out with were their relatives, and inevitably people then had affairs. Uh, those who listened to the bonus episode on the Second Crusade will remember that similar scandals attached themselves to Eleanor of Aquitaine, who was at that time the Queen of France. She was accused of having an affair with her uncle, Raymond of Antioch. 
She then divorced King Louis on the grounds that they were related distantly before marrying the King of England, who inevitably was a cousin of hers. So yeah, I think these type of incidents happened all the time. The reason we're hearing so much more about it now is because the Komnenian aristocracy are sharing the stage together. In the past, the relatives of emperors did not play a prominent role in the history books. Listener Ian asks how the Byzantine navy is after the Egyptian campaign. Well, at this point, it's in a healthy state since Manoel had invested heavily in it. But the Byzantine navy was not a self-sufficient institution. It was left to decay when it wasn't needed and then built up again when it was. Navies were hugely expensive, so it made sense to do it this way. Manuel's fleets made extensive use of the local Italian population to outfit and staff its ships. And in the future, the navy will decline as the central government struggles to collect enough revenue to pay for one. Finally then, listener Ian and listener LW both ask, what is the legacy of the Komnenoi? Or at least the 99-year period before Andronicus ruins everything. Uh, can they be compared to the Macedonian or Isaurian dynasties? I think the Isaurians are a good comparison. Leo III, like Alexius, found the state in danger of collapse and revived it. After a couple more generations, though, each dynasty was overthrown by the forces it had stirred up. In the case of the Isaurians, it was iconoclasm. In the case of the Komnenoi, it was a combination of factors. But the one modern historians tend to point to is the nature of the new aristocracy. By associating so many family members with imperial power, the Komnenoi had created the perfect recipe for endless civil war. After Andronicus chooses factionalism over unity, it will be a descent into chaos. And many modern historians see this as a fundamental weakness in the Komnenian regime. I'm not sure that Alexius, John or Manuel had much choice in this. They needed their relative support to maintain power, and recreating the old system of honours would have been complicated and expensive and made more sense when you controlled Anatolia and you could balance Anatolian lords with Balkan ones. Some kind of civil war probably was inevitable, but that didn't necessarily have to mean the end of the state. I think the Komnenoi did very well to hold Romania together, and with a bit more luck, Byzantium might have ridden out the era of crusading and survived to rebuild once more. Next time, let's turn our attention to Anatolia. We'll interrogate the few sources we do have and see what we can discover, as well as answering many more of your questions about Manuel's reign. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 